Well, could we all bow together, please, and let us just have a word of prayer, and we will look on to the Lord for the help that we need as we meet here today. O God, our Father in heaven, we come before Thee once more. We thank Thee for the return of of another Sabbath day and for the privileges that are afforded to us. We thank Thee for the gatherings of Thy people in the house of God. We come together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for Him and for all the merit and value of His work. We come, O Lord, upon redemption ground. We come to worship Thee. Thou art God, beside Thee there is no other. We bow down in wonder, love, and praise at all of Thy mercy toward us. Lord, how, how unworthy we are, how great is our sin. We are like the psalmist, our sin is ever before us. We say, against Thee, the only have we sinned, and done evil in Thy sight. And, O Lord, we come confessing this, and we pray that Thou wilt have mercy on us. We thank Thee for mercy in Christ. We thank Thee for the sufficiency of the atonement, and for the value and power of that precious blood that He shed. O Lord, we come before Thee now, and we pray that Thou wilt be with us in this gathering and in all the gatherings this Lord's Day morning, bless in Sunday school and in the youth Bible classes. We pray, Lord, for help from Thee, for the moving of Thy Spirit. We pray, Lord, for divine visitation. We long for Thy power and Thy glory to be, ma- uh, to be manifested and revealed among us. Lord, cleanse our hearts and grant us the infilling of Thy Spirit. Draw along now in this Bible class. Bless those who gather in this setting. Bless those who join with us online. We pray, Lord, that every heart will be touched and that the Spirit of God will come down and Thou wilt meet with us as we meet around the Word. Open up Thy Word to us. Bless us in this book of Habakkuk. Give us understanding of these pages. Lord, come and meet with us now, we pray. We commend all into Thy hands. We give Thee thanks and glory for Thy goodness to us. O Lord, abide with us, we pray, for Christ's sake and for His eternal praise. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. I welcome you to our Bible class, and we trust the Lord will be with us, those here in the building and those online. Uh, May the Holy Spirit be our portion as we meet together around the Word. So I want to read the first chapter of Habakkuk. So open up your Bibles at that little book, and let us read together Habakkuk, chapter 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet uh, did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked. And judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land, to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat." They shall come all for violence, their faces shall sop up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God." Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die. 
O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle, they catch them in their net, and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net, and burn incense unto their, unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat, and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net, and not spare continually to slay the nations? And we know that God will bless the reading of this His Word to all of our hearts. Now, our study in the Minor Prophets has brought us today to the prophecy of Habakkuk. May I just say again concerning this book and this man that nothing really is known in terms of biographical details about the prophet Habakkuk, the man whose name is given to this book. There's no mention made in the book itself of parentage or his background or any specific reference to the time when he ministered. Now, the only detail that stands out with regard to some kind of indication of when this man lived, is here in verse 6 of this first chapter. And here we have the Lord speaking, and He says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. By the Chaldeans is meant the Babylonians, the two are really one and the same, the two peoples, I mean, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And so we read here of the Babylonians, essentially, in this reference to the Chaldeans. And it was the Babylonians or the Chaldeans who overran and who overthrew Judah for their wickedness and for their foolishness. The sense of this verse is that an invasion by the Chaldeans is on the way. The Lord says, I raise up the Chaldeans. Then it goes on to say, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. And so, the sense of the, of the words there is very, very clear. The Lord is actually predicting an invasion of Judah by the Chaldeans, because we know that from other Scriptures that it was Judah that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians overran, that they invaded, not the northern kingdom. That was the Assyrians who took the northern kingdom, but it was the Chaldeans who took the southern kingdom. So, there are a few details that help us in our study of, of this book of Habakkuk, trying to ascertain something of the background and the timing of it all. This invasion that's mentioned in verse 6 took place when Babylon became a world power. Now, remember that these empires were real empires, uh, that they existed, and that there were men who are mentioned in the Bible, and as far as the Babylonians are concerned, many of them who ruled over the Chaldeans, over the Babylonians. And actually, the history of those days, the secular history, bears testimony to this. Not that we depend on secular history for the authenticity of the Bible, but it does certainly throw a lot of weight upon what the Bible teaches in the sense, well, it indicates, well, the Bible's accurate because you go to secular history, you read all these Babylonians, you read of the empire that they had in those times. The, the, the nation of Babylon became a world power in the years 626 to 605 B.C. It was during that period that they really came to a height. And during those years, the Babylonian Empire was a man who was named Nobopolassar. It's not really a name you give to your little boy, but anyhow, that's his name. 
Nobel Palaser, and actually the first part of his name with the N-O-B-O part is very similar to other Babylonian kings, and they took this kind of a name because they named their sons and their people after the gods of the Babylonians. And one of the gods of the Babylonians was Nebo. And from that you get Nebuchadnezzar in the first part of his name. You get this name as well, Noble Pulasser. Now, Noble Pulasser was an emperor. He came to a peak of power and authority in those years I've mentioned. And then he was succeeded by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. And it was that man, Nebuchadnezzar, who initiated the first stage of his invasion, his threefold invasion of Judah. And that, of course, truly happened. And you read about this in the book of Jeremiah, of Nebuchadnezzar coming not only once or twice, but three times at successive points in those years. The first time was 605 B.C. Then he came later on, and then he came a third time. And each time he came, he not only invaded the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, but he carried people away. And yet we are told in Second Chronicles the numbers of the people of Judah who were carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. So these things are authentic. These, these facts are true. We do not have any need to doubt them whatsoever because they are revealed to us in the Word of God. So that's what's in view here in verse 6. The Lord says, I will raise up the Chaldeans. And He says, then they shall march through the breadth of the land. And so the Lord predicted, the Lord set forth an invasion of Judah. And that means that uh, Habakkuk's ministry preceded that event. That's logical. Here in his writing, there is a reference to a coming invasion by the Chaldeans that took place in 605. Therefore, we get some understanding of when Habakkuk actually ministered. It was prior to 605, to this invasion that's mentioned here in chapter 1, verse number 6. And most likely, we put it that way, most likely Habakkuk's prophecy was during the reign of King Jehoiakim. I say that for this reason, that Jehoiakim was the man, the king of Judah, whose wickedness and whose folly actually brought Judah down finally. If, you want to, if you'll turn with me now, please, to two verses, or two passages. First of all, 2 Kings 23, and then Jeremiah chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 23, and we'll read a few verses there. At the end of that chapter, 2 Kings 23, verse number 36. Jehoiakim was twenty and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And into chapter 24, in his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. There's a lot of history there that's very important. And remember, this is this is authentic. This is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It talks about Jehoiakim, the age he was when he started to reign, how long he reigned, and so forth, some details. But it tells us in his days, verse 1 of chapter 24, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. That was the first invasion. And so Nebuchadnezzar came for the first time in the days of Jehoiakim. And so we are shown here why he came. Because, as verse 37 says, that Jehoiakim did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then turn to Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, please, and verses 18 and 19. 
And here is Jeremiah speaking of the same time and the same event. Jeremiah 22, verse number 18. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. And that's a sad statement because Josiah was a mighty man of God. And if you read about Josiah in the books of Kings and Chronicles, you will read of the great man that he was, and yet his son, and in fact, he had a number of sons, three sons. Not one of them was of any value spiritually. And so Jehoiakim is the son of Josiah. So it says here, Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And so Jehoiakim came to a very sad end for his wickedness, for his folly, and notice the ignominious nature of his end in the sense that he was buried with the burial of an ass. Now, an ass, you could hardly get a more lowly creature, but an ass was an unclean animal. That's the point the Lord is making here. If you read carefully, you will find this. It was classified as an unclean animal. That is why the ass, we're told, had to be redeemed by a lamb if it was going to, to, to live. And you'll read that detail in Exodus. It was only allowed to live because an ass or because a, a lamb died and redeemed that animal. And by the way, that's the animal the Lord rode on when He rode into Jerusalem. And that little ass that the Lord rode on was the colt of an ass. It was the, the foal, a colt foal of a donkey or an ass. And that meant that that colt was redeemed. And that's interesting. It's another line of thought altogether, but just to mention that in passing, to draw your attention to that, uh, that fact that the ass had to be redeemed, that meant the Lord rode on a redeemed creature. There's a lot of spiritual truth in that. We can look at that some other time. But anyhow, here is the burial of Jehoiakim, and he was buried with the burial of an ass. It says, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. The kings of Judah ordinarily were buried within the city. They were buried in the burial ground where David lay uh, because many of the kings of Judah, the majority of them actually, were godly men. And yet here's a man who, whose burial indicates how wicked he actually was. And he came to this awful end because of his sin. Now all of that to help you to understand something of the timing of the book of Habakkuk. And that's why, as I said earlier, when we see that detail, going back to Habakkuk here, chapter 1, verse 6, when we see that detail in verse 6, we're getting a little insight into the time frame when Habakkuk actually lived and ministered. It was in those days, prior to the invasion by the Chaldeans, in the days of Jehoiakim, and in days, therefore, of great wickedness. Now, look at chapter 1, verse 1, and notice this, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And then chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. I want you to notice that the naming of this book, Habakkuk, is because the writer includes that name twice in those two verses. Chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. So based on the inclusion of his own name, that is the writer's name, the book is entitled Habakkuk. But he's referred to as Habakkuk the prophet. Want to develop that a little. Number one, Habakkuk was a prophet. That's clear and plain from how he writes. Habakkuk the prophet. It points, focuses upon the prophetic office that this man actually occupied. Now, let us keep in mind that the office of the prophet was an extraordinary office for times of deep spiritual need. God raised up prophets, not all the time, only when they were required because times of deep need had arisen. 
And obviously that was the case in the days when this man lived. You see, ordinarily the teachers of Israel were the priests of Israel. I want you to go to Malachi chapter 2 and look at this because this is important for us to notice just to get some understanding of the office of the prophet. And as I said, ordinarily it was the priest who was the teacher of God's people. So we learn this from Malachi 2 verse 7. It says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the Lord as mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And that statement in Malachi 2 verse 7 is true for all of Old Testament history. The priest was the man who was to seek the law at the mouth of God because he was the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But whenever spiritual failure came, like in the days of Jehoiakim and the king of Judah and in the days of, of Habakkuk when he lived, when, when, uh, when those times came, when spiritual failure came, that's when the Lord raised up the prophet. And so the office of the prophet was extraordinary. It was not the ordinary office that belonged to the priest and all those who were in the priesthood. They were the men who were supposed to teach the people, guide the people, give the meaning of the Word of God, and so on and so on. And so in that time of that's in view in this little book, God raised up and He sent Habakkuk to occupy the office of the prophet. That's underlined by the twofold reference to him, Habakkuk the prophet. Why would the Spirit of God have him do that, write that way, except to underline that this is an extraordinary time? It requires extraordinary ministry. It requires a man to come along who is the servant of God and who is the prophet of God to bring a, sp a specific and a special message to the nation at that particular time. And so just note that and keep that in mind as we look at these thoughts today. So, by the use of the phrase Habakkuk the prophet, the Lord's servant himself was drawing attention to the office itself. The office of the prophet was special. It was extraordinary. Now, I want you to go to Romans 11, verse number 13, as I refer to the office of the prophet. I want to draw in here what, something that Paul says about his ministry. Romans 11, and the verse number 13. And we'll just read the verse here as it stands. Romans eleven thirteen, 13. Paul says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. Now let's keep our minds fixed in those words. Because in view here we have the office of the ministry the minister of the gospel, the minister of the New Testament. But Paul writes here about magnifying mine office. To magnify means to honor and to exalt. And Paul's words mean that he endeavored to render as honorable and as glorious as possible the office that he held, the office of the gospel minister, by seeing as many Gentiles converted to Jesus Christ as he possibly could. That's the setting here. Notice in verse 13 again what he says, I speak to you Gentiles. He's right into the church in the city of Rome. It's a Gentile church. Now, he hadn't actually been there, as we know, and as I said many a time, but anyhow, he's writing to them, and they're Gentiles. Then he says this, Inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. And that's a statement of fact. The apostle Paul was raised up by God to go to the Gentiles especially. Now, he did preach to Jews, but it was Peter who was the apostle to the Jews. New Testament makes that very clear. Both men are singled out, and specifically it is said of them that Peter was the apostle of the circumcision, that's the Jew, and Paul, the apostle of the uncircumcision, that's the Gentile people. And that's what he says here. He says, I am the apostle of the Gentiles. So just note that. 
And then he goes on to say, uh, because of this, I magnify mine office. Now, what is he writing about in the context? If you go back to me, or sorry, with me, to verse number 12, you will get the context. It says, Now of the fall of them, that is the fall of the Jews, be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Then if you go down to verse number 14, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them, for if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, that's the world of the Gentiles, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And what Paul is writing about here is the fact that he was sent to the Gentiles to win Gentiles to Jesus Christ, and in the providence of God, that was designed to be a means of stirring up the Jews to get a glimpse of what was happening in the world around them in the conversion of the Gentiles. That's the setting. And it's in that setting that Paul actually says, I magnify mine office. So having explained the setting and why Paul says this, what I want you to notice is, that just as the office of the Old Testament prophet was an extraordinary office, so is the office of the gospel minister in New Testament times. That's what Paul is saying here as he writes about the office into which the Lord had placed him. This does a number of things, this reference, whether to the prophet in the Old Testament or the minister of the gospel in the New Testament. It shows to us the folly of those who teach that there is no office of the gospel minister. There are those who will tell you that, evangelical people. They will decry the office of the gospel minister. They'll say, we don't believe in the one-man minister. Well, neither do I. I believe in many, many ministers of the gospel and serving together and laboring together. But what I want you to see is Paul writes here about the office of the minister. It's a biblical office. It's a New Testament office. Yes, the minister is an elder. A teaching elder is specifically how he's described. And therefore, he is set apart into an office that is distinguished from the other offices of the New Testament church. And I simply say that to draw this to your attention and he says here he magnifies the office. And how, how is the office of the ministry magnified? By as many people being reached with the gospel through that ministry as is possible. For that's what Paul's writing about. And in that way he magnified his office. Not because of his gifts or his talents. Paul was a mighty man, a learned man, a man of tremendous intellect and all of that. But that was not what he means when he talks about magnifying his office. He's writing about the fact that God used him. And that's what we want to pray for, for gospel ministers, that God will use them mightily, because they are sent into the world to bear the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of all the sin and darkness and unbelief. Just as the, New, the Old Testament prophet was sent into the world of their day in a day of darkness and wickedness and departure from God. And so, let us keep that in mind. And let us pray, therefore, that God will bless and God will honor the office of the New Testament minister, because it's what is really the counterpart of the Old Testament office of the prophet. So, just to say all that, because that's important as we think here about Habakkuk actually writing these words, Habakkuk the prophet. So, he was a prophet. He was a true prophet in his day. Those words, Habakkuk the prophet, are in a very definite form. The writer, therefore, establishes that he occupied that office, that he was known as such, that is, as a prophet, in his day. So, while the Lord has passed by largely in silence, biographical detail about Habakkuk, who his parents were, where he lived, all of those details all pass by his age. There's no mention of it all. Why is that? Because it's not important. What's important is, is that this man was known 
as God's man. He occupied an office, as we're seeing, a true office. He was a true prophet, and he therefore occupied an office that was recognized by the people as being occupied by Habakkuk, who was truly a man of God. And that carries on from what I've been saying about the office of the prophet or the New Testament minister and the fact that this is what we want for those who occupy this particular office. It is that they will be known in that way as God's men. I think, for example, of what is said concerning Elisha. If you'll turn to 2 Kings 4 and the verse number 9. There's a little detail here about Elisha that's interesting. And it says, and this is, these are the words of the woman of Shunem, 2 Kings chapter 4, the woman whose son Elisha raised from the dead, as you may know the story. Uh, they were given a son, then the son died. But prior to that, the, the woman of Shunem said something, 2 Kings 4 verse 9. She said unto her husband, Behold now I perceive, that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. And so the woman of Shunem pays uh, testimony here to the name that Elisha had. She says, this is a holy man of God. He's a prophet, remember. He's a minister of the Old Covenant and he's recognized among the people of God in this particular way. He had clearly, uh, uh, he was clearly discerned by the Lord's people as being a man who made an impact for God in his day and in his time. And I just draw your attention to this because this was also true of this man Habakkuk. He was a man who was known as the prophet of God in his day and time. He was also a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Well, we know that from Scriptures that I want you to look at with me. First of all, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and the verses 10 through to 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, the verse number 10. And Peter writes here, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now that verse, 1 Peter 1 verse 10 and also verse 11, those two verses are a reference to the entire company of Old Testament prophets. I want you to see that. Look at verse 10 again. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. This should draw your attention. This should interest you. Because here is the Lord referring to every single prophet in the Old Testament era. And furthermore, you will notice from verse number 11 that the Spirit of Christ was in them. So, every one of them, without exception, was indwelt and infilled by the Spirit of God. The third thing to notice here is what they actually preached. What was their subject? Well, look at verse 10 again. They prophesied of the grace that should come on to you. They were preachers of grace. They weren't preachers of works or the, the, the mere law, man's efforts to keep the law. No, they were preachers of the grace of God, these Old Testament prophets. And that is developed then in verse 11, where it goes on to say that they testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so now you have a summary of the ministry of these men. And the point that I'm making is Habakkuk's among them. You could read this verse and not think about it this way, but you should, because Peter here is referring to the prophets as a class, Old Testament prophets, and he tells us who they were. They were men who preached grace. They were men in whom the Holy Spirit dwelt. They were men whose single specific message was that of the sufferings and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so all of that detail is true concerning Habakkuk. Now please go back to Habakkuk and look with me at chapter 2 and verse number 4. And in this verse, Habakkuk 2 verse number 4, and we'll look at this again on another occasion, but uh, with the Lord's help, but just look at it now to get a certain view of it. Habakkuk 2 verse number 4, it says this, Behold his soul which is lifted up in him, sorry, behold his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Now these are the words of the Lord. And as those last words, I want you to notice, the just shall live by his faith. Now that was a far-reaching statement. It not only addressed Habakkuk's personal struggles, I will say more about that in a moment or two, and then again, uh, maybe next week in the will of the Lord. Uh, The words do address Habakkuk's personal struggles. The just shall live by his faith. In this setting, what it means is, Habakkuk, you are a just man, you're a child of God, and you've got to learn to live by your faith in the midst of all your struggles and difficulties. So it does mean that in the setting here. But it also has a proposition, as it is stated here, the just shall live by his faith, that is inseparably connected in the Bible with the meaning and the advancement of redemption as revealed in the gospel. These words, the just shall live by faith, are found three times in the New Testament. And you will know that, some of you. They're found in Romans 1, 17. Let's turn to Romans 1, verse 17, and look at that particular verse. And then we'll go to Galatians chapter 3. But first of all, Romans 1 and verse number 17, where the words are quoted by Paul as he writes in this setting. And let's look at what he says. Let's get verse 16 as a background. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so the words are used in this instance, in Romans 1, 17, in the context of Paul's discussion of the gospel, why he wants to get to Rome. He wants to get there to preach the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God on his salvation. And then he says, in the gospel, this is written, the just shall live by faith. So what do you learn from this? You learn that Habakkuk was a man who knew what the gospel was. Here we have the words that the Lord put to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, the just shall live by his faith. And they're used by Paul as he discusses the doctrine of justification and purit righteousness. In other words, the gospel of redemption. They're used by Paul to bring home to the Roman Christians what it is to be justified and how we're justified. It is through faith and faith alone. Then turn to Galatians 3. And look at verse number 11. And Paul says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, Galatians 3.11, for the just shall live by faith. And so it's the very same kind of setting. And what you find Paul doing in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11 is employing these words of Habakkuk 2 verse 4 as a crucial element in his explanation of the saving and the justifying faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that brings about the result of being accepted by God, right by God, uh, before God and declared just before God. And so what I'm showing you therefore is that this man Habakkuk as a prophet, he was a man who not only was a prophet and a true prophet and a spirit-filled prophet, but he was a man who preached the gospel. And we find his very words, those great words, the just shall live by his faith, used 
in these two places, Romans 1, Galatians 3, as Paul expounds the doctrine of justification. There's one other place where they're found, uh, said they're found three times in, in the book or in the New Testament. We'll not go to the third place today because it's not within what I want to say, but we will look at it again, and that's in Hebrews, uh, the chapter 10, the toward the end of Hebrews 10, where they're used once more. So Habakkuk was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, uh, we're learning that, we're seeing that, that he was a Spirit-filled prophet. And we've seen all of this detail that brings that uh, in and, and really underlines that. Because remember something, where the Holy Spirit is, there will be the exalting of Jesus Christ. And there will be the preaching of the gospel and the message of justification by faith alone. That will always happen where you have a man and a group of men who are the prophets of God, the ministers of God, and their message will be this and this alone. He was also a man who was moved by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote. We learn that from Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21. Now let's read those two verses again because they are well known, but they are worthy always of our consideration. Second Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation or private origin, for the prophecy came not in old time to the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Note that because that includes Habakkuk. The prophecy, the Old Testament, did not come by the will of man, but rather men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so we are learning, therefore, that this man Habakkuk, who was a prophet, was a man who was filled with the Spirit, and a man who was moved by the Spirit to write the Word of God. Now turn back, please, to Habakkuk here, for one other point before I close this morning, we looked here at the fact that Habakkuk was a prophet, but he was something else. Habakkuk was a prayer warrior. Now, we need to see this, because this is really how the book of Habakkuk is broken into different sections. Habakkuk was a praying man. And let me just take you to the beginning of the book, and notice verses 1 and 2 the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. And he goes on to keep, he goes on to pray in verses 3 and 4. So, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, the prophet praying. That's how you sum up those four verses. Then verse 5 starts a new section. And from verse 5 to verse 11, we have the Lord answering. Look at it. Verse 5, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you, and so on. And so from verse 5 down to verse 11, the Lord answers Habakkuk. Verses 1 to 4, Habakkuk's praying. Verses 5 to 11, the Lord is answering. And then it changes again in verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, etc., etc. Verse 13, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, canst not look on iniquity. From verse 12 to verse number 17, we have the prophet praying again. So do you see it? Verses 1 to 4, the prophet praying. 5 to 11, the Lord answering. Then 12 to 17, the prophet praying. And from chapter 1, well, verse 1 is really a, a little interlude where Habakkuk says, I will stand upon my watch, set me on the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. That's an interlude. But look at chapter 2, verse 2. And 
the Lord answered me. So here is the Lord answering again, and it runs from chapter 2, verse 2, to the very end of the chapter just about. Another answer from the Lord. And then in chapter 3, we have the prophet praying a third time, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigeonath. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known and wrath remember mercy. And he keeps on praying right down to the close of the chapter at verse number 19. So that's the layout of this little book. It's a series of prayers and answers from God. What we learn here is that the man of God was a man of prayer. He was a prophet, but he was also a prayer warrior. He, he uh, exemplifies what we all need to be. We need to be men and women of the book. Not that we're prophets in the sense of the office. And not everybody's a gospel minister in that sense of things. But every Christian is someone who is given a message by God to take to the world around. But on top of that, and actually maybe even more importantly, every Christian is to be a prayer warrior. That's one thing that you and I both are able to do. On that level of things, we're all the same. And we're to get, get before the Lord and we're to seek His face. Now, we will look at this in a little more detail in another study, what, what Habakkuk actually prayed. But just let me give you a glimpse of it here. If you go back to chapter 1, and notice his first prayer, beginning in there in verse, well, really verse 1, the burden which he saw, and then verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry? That's prayer, thou wilt not hear. He thought God wasn't answering. He thought God was ignoring him. And what was Habakkuk praying about here in this first prayer? He was praying about the sin of Judah, his own nation. That's what it's all about. He says, I cry unto thee of violence. Verse 3, Why dost thou show me iniquity? Cause me to behold grievance. And so what is happening here? Well, Habakkuk is seeing in his own land, his own nation, deep wickedness, a falling away, people turning to all kinds of corruption and sin, and it annoys him, and he's grieved about it, and he prays over it. What's God's answer? Well, that begins in verse 5 and goes on down, as I said, to verse number 11. You know what God's answer is? Habakkuk, if you think that your nation is wicked, just have a look at the Babylonians. And God tells Habakkuk, I am going to send the Babylonians to bring judgment on my people, Judah. But the Babylonians are even more wicked than those of Judah. And that really got Habakkuk, as we say. And that's why he begins in verse number 12, Art thou not from everlasting, and so on. And in and the, and the end of that verse, O Lord, thou hast ordained them. That's the Babylonians for judgment. Verse 13, Thou art of pure eyes, and to behold evil canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Now he's praying as a man who's deeply puzzled. He has prayed about the sin of his own nation. God has told him, yes, Judah's wicked. I'm going to destroy Judah by the Babylonians. But the Babylonians are even more wicked and now in the latter part of chapter 1, well, Habakkuk just cannot get his head around that. How God could actually use the nation of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians to judge his own people when the Babylonians were more wicked than them. I tell you, brethren and sisters, this is very up to date. You see, our nation is wicked. Take on our own little province, how wicked it has become. But what's God doing? 
God is using people who are more wicked to bring His wrath and His judgment upon our province. And He does that for His own reasons. And we'll see some of that as we get into this book a little bit more. But God works that way. And it really perplexes the saints of God when you see evil men all around you, and especially in government, who are legislating wickedness. And yet, why are they there? Why does God not? Why does God allow them to be there? Because God is sovereign, and God uses those men somehow or other to fulfill His own purposes. But we are living in a day in, like the day in which Habakkuk found himself, uh, a day when he prayed, and he teaches us a lesson, a vital, valuable lesson that we need to pray perhaps as never before in our day and in our time because of the very same things taking place. We'll have to leave it there. Time is gone. Let's just close at this point, and may God write His Word in our hearts and help us to remember His truth and, and really understand it in the light of our own days. Father in heaven, we come to Thee in the name of Thy Son. We come with that consciousness of our own unworthiness and our sin and our need of grace and of God. Lord, we live in a wicked day. We see the wicked all around us, corrupt and vile themselves, and yet Thou dost use them to bring judgment on Your own people. O God and Father, we pray that Thou wilt help us and Thou wilt draw near to us and give us grace and help, even as Habakkuk received it and went on even to pray in great victory in that last chapter. And so, Lord, bless us, we pray, and be with us throughout this day and in these days in general. And may we be enabled to glorify Thy name. Take our thanks and our praise for Thy presence with us. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.